Why would a church have a Bible week for children? Why wouldn't much effort be put in by children's workers and parents to bring the children together so that they might hear of the Lord Jesus Christ? And they might be sitting under the passages of the Scriptures been taught. I believe, men and women, verse 6 of this chapter answers those questions. Or at least goes a long way to answer that question. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. You see, men and women, the Lord, even in that one verse, confirms that the child can believe and be saved. And conversely, woe unto that person who would seek to be a hindrance or a barrier to one of his children. And I know that there are children that have been discouraged by some answer that an adult has given to them when they've told them they've got saved. I know adults that have doubted even that a child can get saved. But we have here words that the Lord confirms confirms the very fact. Because the Lord says, Who shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me? These words arose from a discourse that the Savior himself was to speak to his disciples. Indeed, the background to the Lord speaking of a child and even bringing one into their midst was to illustrate what the disciples weren't at this particular time. They were having a debate over who would have the preeminence in the kingdom of heaven. And the sense of that is not something in terms of what character would be the greatest. In other words, what graces or what duties that they should excel in. But rather, they were discussing who by name would be the greatest among them. If we consult Mark's account, if you turn over to Mark chapter 9, it gives us the, the very setting, and we can see it also in the chapter previous to where we are tonight. But I draw you to Mark's account of this. Mark chapter 9. We understand that their topic of conversation was what they had on the way to Capernaum. Mark 9, look at the words of verse 33. Remember, uh, the Savior's earthly ministry was based not in Nazareth, but in Capernaum. And he says to them in verse 33, And he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, What was it that ye disputed among yourselves by the way? What were you talking about? What was your conversation as you made your way to this place? But they held their peace. For by the way, they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. You see, men and women, they were embarrassed. They're embarrassed that the Lord put such a question to them because he being God, he knows our thoughts. He knows everything about us. He knew what they were discussing along the way toward Capernaum. He knew that they were debating and disputing among themselves who would be the greatest. And they're embarrassed that the question was even put to them. 
The problem of pride arose in their hearts because they heard much about the kingdom of heaven. They had preached upon Christ's kingdom in this world. There was a notion that it was some temporal kingdom with external pomp and ceremony and power. And the Lord lately had spoken of the sufferings that he would endure, but instead of asking him about those things, they instead latched upon the glory. And is that not like so many today who love to think of the privileges and the glory but bypass thoughts of labor and toil in this world? They look much at the crown, uh, but they forget all about the yoke. They forget all about the cross that they have to bear even in this world. And so it was with these disciples. But in answering the question, the Lord doesn't reveal to them who will be the head of his church on earth. There were no chief vicars on earth. If there were so, then no better opportunity would the Lord have than to tell them of it and to tell them of that person. And in this very passage. But he doesn't. Instead, he's rebuking them by using a child to speak of conversion. I want you to notice, even as we look at a verse or two, particularly at the start of this chapter, I want you to notice the need of conversion. How futile, how frivolous are the arguments of men. Which one was going to be the greatest was the topic of conversation often found among these disciples. We've only got to go back into chapter 16. At the end of chapter 16 particularly, you'll see at the words of verse 21, that the Lord began to show unto his disciples that he must needs go to Jerusalem, that he must needs suffer and die at the hands of the chief priests and the elders, but being raised again the third day. He began to tell them and to teach them what was before him. But even though the Lord spoke of his death that would take place at Calvary, it didn't seem to affect these disciples. They still were thinking of themselves. They still were considering what position they might have in his kingdom. And it was no doubt with bated breath that they waited for the Lord to give them the answer. That he bypassed them all. And he called this little child unto them. You see the words of verse 2. Jesus called a little child unto them. A little child. And that word indicates in some instances, many instances, just an infant. He called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them. You know, in children's meetings and the children's week, sometimes we will use uh, even illustrations objects or whatever to illustrate a truth to the boys and girls where the Lord himself called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of these disciples to teach them. And you'll notice there what he said because he teaches them a salutary lesson and it is the need of conversion. Verily I say unto you, Except, verse 3, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. What is conversion? But a change. A change of heart. 
a change of will, a change of mind. It is that which follows the work of regeneration, where God causes life to be imparted to the dead sinner, something that we cannot do of ourselves, and the result is conversion. And men and women, listen to me, without conversion, there's no salvation. There has to be the change. And as the Lord spoke of conversion, then we must ask ourselves why it is necessary. It is necessary because we have all been born in sin and shaped in iniquity. The Scriptures remind us that there is none righteous, no, not one. For in Adam, when he sinned, when he disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden upon the threat of death, then so all in mankind died in him. We all sinned in him. We're sinners by birth, by nature, and by practice. And indeed, if we consider the manner, if you turn over to Ephesians chapter 2, the manner in which the Apostle Paul speaks of it here in these opening words, we notice that the language is not dissimilar to that of the Savior himself. Chapter 2 of Ephesians and verse 1, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins. Wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. And there Paul is describing uh, to these people of God, describing what they were before the Lord saved them. Dear soul, without Christ you are a child of wrath. For that's what you inherited when you were born. Whatever the status of one's birth, whether you were born in a palace or whether you're born in a hovel, there's no difference. Everyone is born exposed to wrath and liable to the wrath of God against sin. And for that reason you need to be converted. But then you'll consider that we need to be converted and changed in nature because by birth and because of sin, our backs are toward God. We're facing a lost eternity. When Adam sinned and when he disobeyed the Lord God there in that garden, there's something that happened. Adam fled from the Lord in the cool of the day. When he came to meet with them, our first parents, he said, Adam, where art thou? That never was said before. Because sin separates between our Creator God and His creation. And Adam fled. He sought to hide himself behind the trees of the garden instead of having that sweet communion with His Creator God as He had done prior to that time. Sin drives a distance between the sinner who offends and the holy God who is offended. And because of man's sin, his back is toward God, his face is toward that place where God has forgotten to be merciful. And I don't want you to miss this. For you know, men and women, we are more and more in a day of PC. You know what PC is? Political correctness. And you can hardly say anything lest it might be construed as being improper or it might give cause for offense. I think back to my school days, I tell you, there's some offense every day.
And you can hardly say anything now because it's not politically correct. Well, here's an instance where the Lord called a little child into their midst, set them in the midst of these disciples. And the Lord spoke about hell. Do you see that? He spoke about hell. And he spoke about perishing and being lost. You look at the words of verse 8 and 9. It says, Wherefore if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. That doesn't mean physically, that means spiritually. It is better for thee to enter in life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. There's the first time the Savior used that word. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. And he's speaking about hell and the child is in the midst. There are those today and they would try and tell us you can't speak about hell in front of children. Lest they would be traumatized. I've had parents say that to me. The faithful steward or the faithful watchman is to warn of the coming danger. And that means the preacher, whether you're young or whether you're old, he has to warn, he has to tell you that there's a hell to which you're going to in your sin. There's a hell where God will punish sin for all eternity. There's a hell where the worm dieth not and the fire is never quenched. There's a lost eternity that we warn you of and that is why you need to be converted lest in your sin you would continue on to that place. There's a need of conversion because we as sinners are bankrupt before God. It's not a man to have faith to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for faith is the gift of God. People talk about faith today. You know it means very little unless it's saving faith. Saving faith is not in something. It's in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Neither does man have it in him, the fear of God. Romans 3 reminds us that there's no fear of God before their eyes. Neither is it a man to have a love for or toward God. There's none that seeketh after God. Dear sinner, let me say to you, you do not love God. You do not love of yourself or you do not seek of yourself the welfare of your soul. You see, as we read in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, you're dead in trespasses and in sin. A corpse can do nothing. Therefore, you must be regenerated. You must be born again of God's Spirit. You need God to affect this work in you that will bring you to repentance of your sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Savior of a lost mankind. And you'll never see your need for Christ unless and until you realize that you're lost and you're a guilty soul which is bankrupt before God and but for His mercy, you'll be in a lost Sinner's eternity. That was something that William Gadsby was to realize in the depths of his sin. Gadsby was to become a Baptist preacher in Manchester, or just outside it. I'm talking about the end of the 17th century, going into the 1800s. 
But in his unsaved days, he understood not only his depravity, but also his inability to do anything for himself. He said this, and I could no more get at Christ than I could pull God from his throne. He needed the mercy of God and the Spirit to work in his heart. He needed to be regenerated. He needed to be converted unto Christ. And dear sinners, so do you. So do you. Whether you've sat on this church for uh, two years or 26 years, you need to be converted. But not only does the Lord teach here the need of conversion, but there's the evidence of conversion. How can we test what is true conversion? The Savior was to illustrate it. The Savior was to show the evidence by the child that was in the midst of them. He said again in verse 3, Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. For us to understand what the Lord was saying and teaching there, we need to consider some things that are characteristic of little children. Every parent will know this. The evidence of true conversion is the spirit of humility. For that is one thing a child will display. What a rebuke this was to these disciples. They were arguing over who was going to be the greatest among them. They had the greatest ambitions for themselves. Maybe Peter, more so than any other. For it was Peter who was called to walk upon the water to the Lord. It was Peter along with James and John who was on the Mount of Transfiguration who saw that great transformation of the Lord and a little preview of heaven, if you like, who saw Moses and Elijah there. It was Peter, along with those other two, who was in that room when Jairus' daughter was raised to life. Peter was a prominent disciple. But along with those other disciples, they were lifted up in their own importance. And what position they might inherit in Christ's kingdom. You can, just, you can just picture them walking along that road to Capernaum. Uh, uh, who's going to be the greatest man? You don't think it'll be me. But the Lord chastises them by stating that the effect of true conversion is that of the spirit of humility. Instead of being like the Pharisee in the temple and thinking how great he was and all that he did and the tithes that he given. It is the spirit of the publican who smote upon his breast, who said, Lord, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's humility. It's taking the lowly place. It's recognizing that in and of ourselves we are nothing. We will be nothing apart from Christ. It is that Christ-like spirit that brings us to an end of ourselves and realizing our sin. We can only look to the one who bore that sin, who was to pay the penalty for that sin in his own body on that tree. It is like the hymn writer put it, and we love singing it. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Has there been such a humility in your life's experience? And you have come away from that pedestal of thinking that you're something to recognizing before God, I'm nothing. I'm only an old sinner. And I need Christ. There's something else about a little child. Has the spirit of being totally dependent upon the parent? 
They can do little of themselves. And it is dependent upon the one who cares for them, who loves them, who feeds them when they can't feed themselves. The child will, without question, trust their parent. They will confide in them. And as it is true in the physical sense, in it is so likewise in the spiritual. If, dear loved one, you are to be saved, then you must, in repentance of your sin, cast your all upon the Lord, pleading for his mercy. You will rest solely upon the one who cares, who loves his children so much that he willingly came and gave himself upon that old rugged cross. As in the words there of verse 11 of this chapter states, and you know what, I take you to that verse, I have to say this, it's a good job this church doesn't use the NIV. And it's a good job this church doesn't use the ESV. There's a lot of evangelicals so-called today and they're now talking about the ESV. You know, when I was growing up, young people, it was the NIV. And you had to have the NIV. Well, those same people in that my generation, they're now left the NIV and they've gone to the ESV. And why we don't use them, and I don't use it in my study, by the way, either. This is the old book. The authorized version will do us. It did our forefathers. It'll do us. And why I don't use those other versions is Matthew 18 11 is not there. It's cut out. It jumps from verse 10 to verse 12. You check it out if you have an opportunity to do so. What a verse. Look at it. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Why in any way would you leave that verse out? That's the modern versions for you, you see. What a travesty. For surely it shows the great truth of the gospel. A son of man has come to save that which was lost. And that meant paying the full price of our redemption by laying down his life and shedding his own precious blood. God's salvation is found only by laying hold upon Christ alone by faith. Rest in your life. Rest in your, uh, your entire eternity. Your soul's well-being upon him who loved his children, who gave himself for them. Let me ask you tonight, what are you dependent upon? Depending upon the Father's provision. Remember what Isaac asked Abram? Father, we have the wood and the fire, but where's the lamb? And Abram said, God will provide himself a lamb. And in John's Gospel, in chapter 1, you have the answer. For John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb of God, which beareth away the sin of the world. Are you depending on God's provision tonight? Are you depending upon Christ alone and that finished work of Calvary? If you're not resting and depending on, on Christ and that finished work of atonement, you're depending on a false hope. I don't care what, how noble it is. It's a false hope. It's sinking sand. And something else about a little child. They will be submissive. 
without query, the little child will yield to their father. There's a childlike submissiveness. And is not that the spirit that the sinner needs to know God's salvation? If you're to be saved, if you're to be washed in the Savior's blood, then you must come God's way. You must submit to the way of the cross. For the way of the cross leads home. It is having done with your own notions and your own ideas, which are nothing but the way of the thief and the robber that the Lord himself warns about in John's Gospel, chapter 10. It's having done with your own preconceived ideas as to how God will accept you. If I do this or if I do that, then I'll be all right. It's having done with that. It's having done with that rebellion and submitting to God's way. And that is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And these things you can experience through the power of God's Spirit. It is God who is able to change the heart. It's God who is able to give you a new heart. It's God who is able to put a new spirit within you. A new nature. Whereby you'll never be the same again. Whereby you'll desire to walk and to live for God. You see, the evidence of conversion, it's summed up in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and the words of verse 17, for it simply says this, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. In fact, the word is a new creation. All things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. You see, that's... That's the evidence of, of the true conversion. There has to be the change. That's not what modern evangelism does. Modern evangelism says, put your hand up and you go on out and, and live the way you came in. No difference. But men and women, the Word of God speaks about the change. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. What a test this is. How many have you experience of the new birth? Have you been converted? Changed. From inside out. There's one final thought here that the Lord's teaching the disciples is the blessings of conversion because if you consider the last words of verse 3, then it can only lead us to consider the blessings that the repentant sinner can have. He said, Verily, truly, I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. There's the blessing of being called and sought of by the Lord. Just as this child, this little child, was called by the Savior in verse 2. Do you see it? Jesus called a little child unto him. And set him in the midst of them. And just as the Lord called that little child into their midst, so the Lord is yet calling in grace. He's calling unto himself. He has said, Come unto me, all yet labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Just as the shepherd goes in search of that one lost sheep of which we have read about, even in this very passage, and he searches until he finds it, so it is the shepherd of our souls who is still seeking the lambs, and he's still seeking the sheep that are out in the mountains of this world. Oh, men and women, young people, what a blessing to hear the call of the Lord in salvation, in the gospel to your soul. To know the pleadings of God's Spirit upon your heart. 
And while others are passed by, what a blessing that you should hear words whereby you must be saved. And so, my friend, while the Spirit is striving and while the Lord is calling, don't delay. Don't delay. There's the blessed security that the Lord gives in salvation. For the sinner, the greatest blessing surely is to be reconciled to holy God. As I said to you before, when Adam sinned in the garden and we sinned in Adam, there's the great distance. Adam's face was toward a lost eternity. His back was toward God. There's a need to be reconciled, to be at peace with God again. And that's the greatest blessing, and surely we can, uh, if, if we remember the words of Romans 5 and 1, it says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what takes place at conversion. We who once were afar off are been made nigh by the precious blood. There's that union with Christ where before there was enmity and there was a separation. There is that relationship with a friend of sinners of which the boys and girls were learning last week where before there was that distance caused by sin. There is peace with God. There's peace over our sins forgiven where before there's a fear and there's a guilt. And once we know the blessing of God's salvation, then there's the security and there's the safety in Christ from which nothing can separate us. Closing words of Romans 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it is an unbreakable union. But not only peace, not only that relationship with Christ, but there's the security of a place in heaven. Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. God's heaven is barred to all who are not converted. It's the place prepared for those who have repented. It's the place prepared for those who have saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there we shall go to be with Christ, who is the head, who is the center of all there is in Emmanuel's land. His desire is that his people will be with him. You see, that's what he prayed in John 17 in the words of verse 24. Let me read it to you. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. That they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. The Savior's desire is that everyone for whom he died on that cross will be with him where he is in glory. Have you the assurance of such a security in Christ tonight? Preacher, I'm in Christ. I'm not asking you, do you know about Christ? I'm asking you of the eternal security that you're in Christ. The blessing of a true conversion is that we sinful and guilty hell deserving sinners are saved from perishing in that lake which burneth with fire. For God will not payment twice to man, first at my bleeding surety's hand, and then again at mine. 
the soul that has been saved by God's grace, converted to Christ from sin, is that soul that will never perish. The Lord said, as I brought it out this morning, I give unto them eternal life. I shall never perish. What about the best known verse? Boys and girls learn it in the Sunday school. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Let me ask, do you know by experience what it is to be safe in the arms of Jesus? You have these blessings of being converted from your lost state and condition to salvation in Christ Jesus. William Gadsby, I mentioned a little earlier, he is brought to that point when as a young man of just 17 years of age. His account of it is this, I quote, His blessed spirit brought me to feel the love and the blood of Christ. Then how my heart melted. I was brought to his footstool with all humility, simplicity, and godly sincerity like a child. I was then solemnly and blessedly led to believe in God's free mercy and pardon and could look up and say, He loved me and gave himself for me. Can you say that tonight? Galatians 2.20 He loved me. Not merely he died for sinners on the cross, but he loved me. And he gave himself for me. Wonder will you look to Christ tonight and be saved? Except you be converted and become as little children shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. The Lord bless his word to our hearts this evening. May the Lord speak even when the preacher's voice is silent.